Thank you, Brian, for reading our scripture. We're going to be looking at John 17, 17 in just a moment as we think about the theme, there's no other book like the Bible. Last week in our study, we talked about Christian evidences and the fact that we can believe what the Bible has to say about our origin. And in light of that lesson, I want to follow it up tonight by talking about the Bible. And there are a lot of folks in our world today that have little or no use for this book that we call the Bible. And yet I would suggest to you that there is no other book like the Scriptures, like the Bible. And so we're going to be looking at a couple of things in relationship to that. Appreciate so much your presence tonight. I know that we have a lot of folks that are traveling. It's a, it's a busy time of year. You've got vacations and today's Father's Day. And so we pray for those who are traveling. If you're visiting with us, we encourage you to come back and be with us again. We're so grateful for your presence. I want to begin tonight by talking about the uniqueness of the Bible. And then secondly, I want to share with you some things about the unity of the Bible. And there's some things I want to read to you tonight in light of the uniqueness of the Scriptures and the unity of the Scriptures. And there is, as Wayne Jackson has written in Days Gone By, a certain DNA code that is represented in the Scriptures. And really, they authenticate the fact that the claims that are made in the Scriptures, they come from God. There is no other book like the Bible, absolutely none. There have been a lot of great books that have been penned down through the years, a lot of great authors. There have been classics, as you well know, but there is no book like the Bible. As Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. I want to begin as we think about the uniqueness of the Bible by emphasizing the fact that the Bible is the product of Almighty God. In Psalm 19, the psalmist talks about how creation lends evidence to the fact that there is a God. It is, as we would say, a silent sermon. And we can know that there's a God by examining creation and the things of this world. But we cannot know the mind of God separate and apart from divine revelation. And God has given us his divine revelation so that we might know his will for us in our lives. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, one of the things that we have to understand, both covenants... Both testaments that are found in the 66 books of the Bible are absolutely, uniquely inspired by Almighty God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 16, Paul said, All Scripture, every Scripture, is inspired by God. In other words, it is God-breathed. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter said that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. So God directed or superintended certain individuals to pen for us the book that we call the Bible. 
And I would also emphasize the fact that based on 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, that we're talking about verbal inspiration. And so when you put all of this together and you go back and you look at the Old Testament, there are some 3,800 instances when the claim is made that this is the Word of God. For example, in the book of Exodus in chapter 17 at verse 14, God instructed Moses to write in a book. And I think about the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 16, when he said, Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. 39 books in the Old Testament. David said in the long ago, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. David, as you well know, was an inspired penman. He penned many of the Psalms. And then, by way of the New Testament, Jesus promised during his earthly ministry that God the Father would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And he said, He will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you in John 14, verse 26. In John 16, verse 13, Jesus said, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Now think about that for a minute. Peter would say later in 2 Peter chapter 1 that God has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The idea is that everything we need to know about life and godliness has been revealed. Well, who revealed it? God did. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Do you remember in the book of Ephesians when the apostle Paul wrote about the church? In chapter 3, he talked about how God had given him revelation. And he said he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words. He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So God used certain men to record for our benefit his word and his will. One of the things that I would want to point out at this juncture is that God's word is absolutely binding and authoritative in the lives of every person. When we, when we talk about God's holy word, we need to understand that God has given us his word so that we might enjoy life and godliness. This word is authoritative in every sphere of life. For example, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All power, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. God the Father said of Jesus, when he was transfigured on the mountaintop in Matthew 17, verse 5, he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then here's what he said, Hear him. So we're talking about the authoritative word of the living God. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, that we are not to go beyond that which is written. God has given unto us the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2. It is identified as the perfect law of liberty in James 1.25. It is called the law of liberty in James chapter 2, verse 12. And this law, this book, will one day judge us. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. He said, The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Let me just make one very quick observation. No one has the right to add to or take from 
the contents of this book. God said to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, that they were not to add to his word, nor were they to take from it. In Proverbs chapter 30, at verse 6, the writer there said, Add not unto his word. Revelation chapter 22, 18 and 19. God, in effect, said the exact same thing. And he said that those who do so, they are on perilous, perilous grounds. Now, let me share with you another concept here as we think about the uniqueness of the Scriptures. I really believe that the Bible can be proven to be a product of God. Now, you might ask the question, how do you prove that? How do you prove that this is indeed the Word of Almighty God? Let me just call attention to several various areas, realms of life, if you please. First, I think about the study of oceanography. There's a fellow that lived in between 1806 and 1873 by the name of William Fontaine Murray. On one occasion, he was sick. He asked one of his daughters to read for him from the scriptures. The passage that she chose on that occasion was Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, David, in that context, talks about the paths of the sea. So, after hearing that, Mr. Murray said, when I get well, I'm going to find the paths of the sea. Did you know that he found them? As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, he found that there were two ridges running from the New York coast to England. And he charted those. So that those who were traveling to England and back could follow those charts. There's a monument that has been erected in his honor in the state of Virginia. On that monument, the words are inscribed, Pathfinder of the Seas. To the left of his foot, as he is seated on that monument, there's a copy of the scriptures. Mr. Murray believed deeply in the Word of God. And so I think about, here's an individual that found that what David recorded in the long ago was absolutely correct. In the book of Job, in chapter 38, verse 16, God asked a series of questions to Job, one of which was, Have you entered the springs of the sea? Did you know that these springs have been located off the coast of Greece, Italy, Israel, and Syria, off the coast of Australia? Fresh water may be dipped in abundance from the sea. How would he have known that? And by the way, in that same verse, same chapter, God asked Job in the long ago, Have you walked in search of the depths or the deep? The deep here has reference to the deep resource recesses of the sea. Did you know that located in the western Pacific, east of the Philippines, there's what is called the Mariana, Mariana Trench. That canyon is seven miles deep. Now think about that. Seven miles deep. 
How would Job know anything about the depth of the ocean had God not inspired that writing? To put it into perspective, if you were to go out to the red light out here and plug in on your GPS from the red light to North Point Christian School on Getwell, that is exactly seven miles. That's a long way. The point is, Job didn't have a submarine, did he? He didn't have the tools that are used today to explore the depths of the sea, and yet God spoke of the depths of the sea. God spoke of the springs of the sea. And so, here were discoveries made corroborating what has been recorded for us in the scriptures. What about in the study of medicine? In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, Moses said, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. What do blood cells do? Carry oxygen, don't they? Did you know that President Washington, one of the things that contributed to his death at the time frame in which he was living, the period of time in which he was living, those in medicine believe that in order to fight illness, disease, that you practice what was called bloodletting. What they later came to find, life is associated with blood, isn't it? How would Moses have known that? Moses lived 1,500 years before Christ. We're talking about 3,500 years ago. Job, I mentioned him a moment ago. Job was a patriarch who preceded men like Moses. His time frame would have been around the days of Abraham or prior to. In Genesis chapter 17 at verse 12, God instructed Abraham with regard to circumcision. Do you know that God instructed this to be done on the eighth day? Why the eighth day? Why not the first, second, third day? The reason is because all of the properties present for blood, blood clotting occurred when? on the eighth day. How would he have known that? I would submit unto you, God in his infinite wisdom knew about vitamin K and the importance of that vitamin in relationship to the clotting of blood. What about in the study of physics? In Hebrews chapter 1, in verse 10, the writer there, as a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer shows the superiority of Christ to angelic beings. In verse 10, he said, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. He said, The heavens are the work of your hands. But then he said something interesting in verse 11. He said, They will perish, but you will remain. They will all grow old like a garment. It is a matter of science. The second law of thermodynamics suggests the world in which we live 
is running down, wearing out. How would the writer of Hebrews know that? You know how he knew it? Because God inspired him. And then, what about in the study of astronomy? I mentioned a couple of weeks ago the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. Isaiah there spoke of the spherical shape of the earth, the fact that the earth is a circle. How do you think Isaiah the prophet knew that? I said a couple of weeks ago, Isaiah the prophet wrote 750 years before Jesus came to earth. Jesus Christ came to earth nearly 2,000 years ago, so we're talking about 2,750 years ago. And yet Isaiah wrote, speaking of the Lord, sitting above the circle of the earth. How would he have known that? Did he have the capabilities that we do today? Could he have manned a spaceship and launched out into space and looked back the globe? Absolutely not. Many people in that day believed the earth to be flat. The reason I say these things is because you need to understand there are a lot of folks and there are a lot of educated people that will try to tell you that the Bible is nothing more than folklore. It's a bunch of fantasy. It's a bunch of fiction. Well, let me tell you what. The evidence is in. And this book is inspired of God. There is no other book on the face of planet Earth like this book. These are just some examples. There are a lot of different studies that you could engage in if you want to really dig in deep and study the authenticity of the Scriptures and you want to go back and look at some of these subjects in depth to verify in your own mind that this is indeed the Word of God. These are just some highlights. So we talk about the uniqueness of the Scriptures, and then secondly, the unity of the Scriptures. There's some things that we need to think about in connection with these inspired penmen. The Bible was written over a span of about 15, some would say 1,600 years, by approximately 40 different writers. Now you think about that. Over the period of 15 to 1600 years, you have 40 different writers, and these men came from various backgrounds, various cultures, various types of occupation. David was a shepherd who later became a king, didn't he? Matthew was a tax collector. Peter and John were fishermen. Paul was a tent maker. We're talking about individuals who come from various backgrounds employed in different trades, and yet the unity with which they wrote is absolutely astounding. Could you imagine taking 40 different people over a period of 1,500 years and asking them to write a chapter for a book? And over the course of that 1,500 years, the goal was for every chapter to blend together in unity. You think that'd be possible? You think there'd be one united theme? Let me tell you what. You go back to the Old Testament, 39 books comprising the Old Testament. Five books of law. 
In the New Testament, 27 divine books. Four very specific books dealing with the life of Jesus. The book of Acts, recording for us the birth of the church. The birth, infancy, and phenomenal growth of the early church. Go back to the Old Testament and think about when God introduced his plan to redeem mankind in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And going forward, that plan is unveiled bit by bit, piece by piece, over the course of the years. That plan was united, wasn't it? As a matter of fact, I want to read something for you that I read many years ago and it's stuck with me ever since. It helps me to put into perspective the beauty of this book. Because you need to understand that the Old and New Testaments really fit together hand in glove. They, they are united in every sense of the word. For example, in Isaiah chapter 53, you remember Isaiah talked about that suffering servant. In chapter 7, he talked about how the Messiah would be born of, of a virgin. And then in Matthew chapter 1, what does Matthew do but affirm for us that the virgin birth occurred, just as Isaiah the prophet had said. The suffering servant, foretold by God centuries before. And here we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the other writers verifying for us this great fact. Many years ago, I entered the temple of God's revelation. I entered the portico of Genesis. Walked down through the Old Testament art gallery where the pictures of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and Daniel hung on the wall. I passed the music room of Psalms where the Spirit swept the keyboard of nature and brought forth the dirge-like wail of the weeping prophet Jeremiah to the grand impassioned strain of Isaiah until it seemed that every reed and pipe in God's great organ of nature responded to the tuneful touch of David the sweet singer of Israel. I entered the chapel of Ecclesiastes where the voice of the preacher was heard and into the conservatory of Sharon and the lily of the valleys, sweet scented spices filled and perfumed my life. I entered the business office of the Proverbs, then into the observatory room of the prophets where I saw telescopes of various sizes, some pointing to far off events, but all concentrated on, on the bright and morning star, which was to rise above the moonlit hills for our salvation. I entered the audience room of the King of Kings and caught a vision of his glory from the standpoint of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, passed into the Acts of the Apostles where the Holy Spirit was doing his work in the formation of the infant church, then into the correspondence room where sat Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, Peter, James, and Jude pinning their epistles. I stepped into the throne room of Revelation where all towered into glitt glittering peaks and I got a vision of the king sitting upon his throne in all his glory and I cried all hell the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. That's a beautiful piece. And it really helps to put into perspective the unity of the scriptures. 
Now somebody might ask the question, why was the Bible written? Why do we need the scriptures? Let me just ask you to turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And note with me very quickly, verses 16 and 17. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. As some have said in days gone by, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And you put them both together and you see that there is one grand plan, one grand scheme of redemption, one Savior who came to set free those who were caught and who are caught in the captivity of sin. There is one church about which the Bible tells us was founded on Pentecost Day, prophesied of by men like Daniel and Isaiah, Micah, one plan to save man. That one plan, that one plan of redemption that we're talking about. It's all right here in this book. You see, you can know that there's a God by looking at creation. But you'll never know the mind of God. You'll never know His will for you in life, separate and apart from this book that we call the Bible. That's why Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Now we live in a day and time when a lot of folks have turned a deaf ear to the teaching of the Bible. They've turned a deaf ear to what the Bible has to say. And there are a lot of people in our world today, sadly, that ridicule and mock the claims of God, the claims of His Word. But I would remind you, this book, this book, defense itself. And if we were to go into a courtroom of law and allow this book to speak for itself, every single syllable verified, can be verified. Now you might ask the question, why is God's word important to me? Well, you need to understand. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And without Christ, we're lost and dying. In this world, Paul said, we're without hope, without God in this world, Ephesians 2.12. And the only thing that can set us free is the blood of Jesus. The writer of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 4 verse 12 said, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I want you to hear what Jesus said. I am the way, truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The Bible says salvation is in Christ. There's only one way to get into Christ, and that's to be baptized into him. When you're baptized into Christ, you then enjoy all spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3. You have the quality of life defined as eternal, 1 John 2, verse 25. You live in hope of life eternal, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. So I want to ask you, number one, do you believe the Bible? If you believe the Bible, then you believe that without Christ you're lost. And if you're lost, 
Why not obey the gospel? Why not come to believe that God's ways are the best ways? Paul said, the scriptures have been given so that we might stand before him, pure and just in his sight. I want to encourage you tonight, if you're not a Christian, to put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God, believing that he is the Son of God, repenting of every sin, confessing his name before others, being immersed in water so that all your sins can be washed away. If you're here tonight and you're unfaithful to his cause, maybe you need the prayers of the church. Could we pray with you tonight? Could we pray for you? The Bible says confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. The gravity of everything we're talking about really is summed up in what Jesus said in John 12, verse 48. He that rejecteth me, receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The words that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. I want you to think about this. There's coming a day in which this book that we call the Bible is going to be opened. And James said, so speak and so do as they that will be judged by the law of liberty. This book's going to judge you. You're not going to be judged on the basis of what your peers think, on the basis of what your classmates think, your neighbors think, your family thinks. This book's going to judge you. The only thing that's going to matter on the day of judgment is this. Was your life in harmony with the will of God? God has given us His Word so that we might live acceptably before Him. The question is, are we in His will? If not, won't you come as we stand and sing?